HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and my adorable, wonderful, brilliant mother, Bobby Comforto, who is not here for the intro. Folks, it seems like we're used to Bobby not being here for the intro. Do I need to still say it? I will, because I miss her when she's not here, but she's a busy lady. Um, But of course, as always, she's here for the episode to offer her wisdom and insight. And yeah, it's a great episode today. We have Bhavani Jaroff on the show. Um, Bhavani is a natural food chef, an educator, a farm to school coordinator, a radio host, and a food activist with over 30 years of experience cooking healthy, fresh, organic, and um, vegan food. Um, And Bhavani is also a grief survivor and a really wonderful and really wise and um, just very cool woman. So we had a great conversation about so many things, about her early life and getting into food, about some of her activism work and uh, her work with charitable organizations over the years. Um, Yeah. And then about her own grief experiences of losing uh, parents and loved ones. And it was just a really nice conversation. I feel like I learned a lot and um, it was the hour absolutely flew by. We could have talked to her all day. So thank you guys for listening. And uh, as always, if if you could find the time for a little rate, review, subscribe, we'd really appreciate it. It helps grow the show. And if you yourself or someone you know, a willing participant, <laughs> um, wants to be a guest on the show, we would absolutely love to hear from you. And you can contact us uh, the best way to really contact us is via Instagram, and we are processing underscore podcast. Send us a DM um, or at processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Um, guys, without any further ado, we give you our chat with Bhavani and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Take care of yourselves and each other. Thanks. Bye. Okay, well, today we are joined by Bhavani Jaroff. And Bhavani is a natural food chef, educator, farm to school coordinator, radio host, and food activist. She has over 30 years of experience cooking healthy, fresh, and organic food. And Bhavani, you are also a family friend of ours, and it is so nice to spend this time with you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. I'm excited to be with you. Yeah, Ooh. absolutely. So, Bhavani, um, I first met you, and I know that Bobby and you have known each other for a bit longer through some mutual friends, but I first met you coming to your home to help prepare um, for something you do or definitely did annually. I'm not sure if you still do it with cooking so many turkeys for (laughs) folks in need around Thanksgiving time. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because that was such an incredible memory and experience to be a part of. I'd love to. Well, I've done it for 25 years, and actually the last two years... Uh, because of COVID, they didn't want to do it. But for 25 years, I've partnered with the um, River Fund of New York, which is a food pantry that really looks at the whole person. I mean, it's an exceptional food pantry. It's not your average one, but they really um, know the people that they are servicing. And for 25 years, we've gone into Rufus King Park, which is in Jamaica, Queens, 
and fed the needy there. And it started where it was a couple hundred people. And over the years, it's grown to about a thousand people show up um, to receive a full homemade Thanksgiving meal. Mm. And we always serve it on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving because um, the food pantry that I partner with, they also bring a mobile food pantry there. So they actually are handing out whole fresh turkeys to people that actually have kitchens to cook. But so many of the people don't have kitchens to cook. So we um, cooked um, about 80 turkeys in my home, um, (laughs) along with hundreds of pounds of sweet potatoes and regular potatoes and green beans. And I put out to the community and I get volunteers. And I usually have about 100 people that come through my home over the long weekend while we're preparing. And I rent a refrigerated truck that actually um, Harry Tapin Food Pantry actually has funded the truck the last few years. So we have a truck sitting out in the driveway that's refrigerated for all the food. And I've partnered with the Young Men and Women's Real Estate Association, and they actually have some trucks that they now provide to transport everything. So it's really become a wonderful, um, well-oiled engine, as they say, over the years. It's really incredible. And what's so great is I actually open it up so that families can come. So it's not just, you know, most of the volunteer things don't allow kids. Right. And I think it's so important for kids to come and see their parents volunteering and giving. And the kids can participate, too. I, I fill our upstairs bathtubs with the potatoes. So the <laughs> kids are the ones scrubbing the potatoes and the sweet potatoes. And I mean, my whole house gets taken over to make this happen because I don't have a commercial kitchen. Um Thank God I do have a commercial stove so I can actually get four turkeys in my oven at a time. Right. It's incredible. That's how we do 80 turkeys. Yeah. That's incredible. So tell us a little bit about, so this is obviously such a a deep way of committing to this kind of cause of caring for people through food. Um, How did you become interested in this line of work? How did it go from where you began, uh, let's say as a teen or someone learning about food and eating food, like you know, within your family to where you are today at this level of uh, phil- phil- philanthropy in the community with food? Well, the food pantry, the River Fund, actually was started by a friend of mine, Swami Durgadas, who is um, on a similar spiritual path that I've been on, you know, since I was 16. And I met Ram Das and I kind of went towards, um, you know, I got into yoga and I followed a spiritual path. Uh the River Fund is an outpouring of that. And so it was started by a friend. And so I was just volunteering individually with him. And as I got more and more into cooking and catering and I had the supplies to cook for large quantities, I proposed to him that we do something more for Thanksgiving. And he loved the idea. So that's really kind of how I connected with the River Fund. Um, Right, right. But so where did your interests start? What was it like in your family growing up? What was the food dynamic like? Were your, was your family interested in food? And we know a little bit about your story and how when you were in college, things kind of changed for you in terms of your interests. But even before that, what was it like for you growing up? What was it like eating around the table at home? Um, eating around the table at home. Well, we grew up, uh, my mom did cook but she mostly cooked the meat, you know, whether it was chicken or meatloaf or whatever. And then she was all about getting it on the table quick. So we had instant mashed potatoes. We had minute rice. Occasionally she would make Uncle Ben's rice that would take 25 minutes, but otherwise it was instant rice, canned vegetables. So I never saw any fresh vegetable in my house other than iceberg lettuce, (laughs) cucumbers, tomatoes for an iceberg salad. Um, but we had no fresh vegetables. Everything was canned or frozen. And at 16, I became a vegetarian um, as I was following my yoga and spiritual path. And um, I read Diet for a Small Planet, and that just overnight changed my uh, eating pattern. And my mother, being the mom that she was, she just like went like this with her hands and said, you're on your own. And (laughs) so um, I went out, I bought a wok, and the first time I used my wok, I opened canned veg all. 
Do you know what that is? It's no. cans of like mixed vegetables with lima beans and square carrots oh and peas. Gosh. And I drained it and I cooked canned vegetables in my wok because that's all I knew. It's <laughs> amazing. So, hey, everyone's going to so start I'm somewhere. Right. So I'm completely self-taught. Um, you know, I, I got recipes from, you know, starting with diet from a small planet and went from there. Um, so I really just am self-taught and... Um, when I was in college, I lived communally with people who are on a similar spiritual path with me. There were lots of houses in Queens with, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 young people living in a house together. And we all cooked together and we started going to Hunts Point Market to buy the vegetables in bulk. And so cool. I started cooking um, for our household, which was 15 or 20 people communally. And then I just kept cooking. Always, you know, I cooked through college and that's how I always made a living. That's amazing. Love it. You know, you were saying in your kind of pre-interview about discovering that you were really interested. I mean, it sounds like when you were 16, you became a vegetarian, but like really kind of tucking into it in college. And you had mentioned that like the only options were, you know, coming coming from Cisco and these kind of like, you know, commodity places. Um and it's just striking. It was it was striking to me how, you know, people who are like young people and learning and in, in schools and in elementary schools and in high school and low income folks and kind of all these people who really need good, fresh food don't have it. You know what I mean? We they we give them the worst quality things possible. Yeah. Um, and I'm and now knowing the work you do today, and especially like, and I would love to get to it, but like your work in the education system with food, like, was this an inspirational kind of thing to you in terms of seeing like, well, I, you know, this is, this is weird. What do I do with this? How did, was that influential to you? Um, it was, I mean, again, you know, you, you can plan your life and then it really kind of just happens the way it happens anyway, you know, yeah. um, what did John Lennon say, you know, um, uh, life is what happens while you're busy making plans, you know? And so, yeah. um, my freshman year of college, the vegetarian meal plan at Alfred university was really pretty poor back then. Um, we're talking about 1975. I'm dating myself. So, um, <laughs> I proposed, I had work study and I proposed cooking for the vegetarian meal plan at college. And that's where I first learned how to cook for 75 to hundred people at a time because the cafeteria ladies at the college taught me how to use the large Hobart machines and the large equipment. Oh, cool. And that's how I first got my start so that when I finished college and I found myself as a single mom, I could actually start a catering company because I knew how to cook for lots of people. So that's kind of how that happened. But I was always interested in cooking for uh, cooking healthy because that's the path that I was on. So um, it just made sense when I graduated college and started my catering company that it was a vegetarian catering company. Um, and so the whole thing, you know, when you talk about cooking turkeys, I only cook turkeys once a year for 80 of them for the feeding the homeless, you know, and I'll, I'll make one also for Thanksgiving for my family if everyone's coming over, but otherwise I don't cook meat. So right. that's a whole different thing for me. That's a lovely thing, though, and I think it's being able to, and you kind of mentioned this in another way, which I would like to get to later, but, you know, cooking things for people that you know that they'll love and separating your own personal tastes and even, like, you know, your own ethos and the kind of things you live by, like, to give people things that are important to them, it's, it's loving, and it's, a, it's an important kind of thing to remember in a lot of ways, you know, for yeah. a lot of reasons. It doesn't always have to be about what our personal beliefs are to show care to somebody else. It's kind. It's true. I mean, for me, food is love, you know. And so, you know, when I was caring for my dad, you know, before he passed, you know, yes, I know that sugar feeds cancer and I know he has cancer. Yeah. But am I going to deprive my 83-year-old father of chocolate ice cream at yeah. that point in his life? No way. You I know. know, I'm I buying him the experience. best chocolate organic ice cream I could find <laughs> yeah. for him to totally. have. I had the same experience with my dad. Like, I went through this thing with my dad. My dad was always, like, really overweight. And he had cancer for like 10 years and I would go down and cook for him all the time. And 
I had the same experience where like at a certain point I was like, okay, I'm going to make him, I'm going to go down and pack the freezer full of smoothies of kale smoothies and grab Mm -hmm. one out. And I'm going to make like, you know, cabbage soup. And I'm going to do like every single thing you could think to try to heal him. He fixes cancer. And I, at some point I'm like, this cancer is incurable. This man will never lose a hundred pounds and keep it off. That's not going to happen. Like the realities of like what I wanted to happen, like weren't going to happen. And so I was like, he wants like macaroni and cheese, you know what I mean? Right, or like lasagna. Right. Uh-huh. That will make him happy and he'll feel good and we can connect over that. We won't butt heads over it. It'll like offer him what he wants. And it hurt me in a way to do it because it felt like a sense of like giving up on something that I believed, but it was also like kind and it allowed us to have this whole other part of our relationship that was maybe being like stifled by, you know what I mean? My push to to try to do things the way I thought they needed to be done and just like let him enjoy stuff. So yeah, I can absolutely. Yeah, we have to make adjustments yeah. when we give. It's a sacrifice, a loving sacrifice, a, a willing sacrifice that we give. Yeah. Well, I've cooked for cancer patients a lot, and I always, I meet, I talk to them first before I take on the job, and I talk about what foods really bring them happiness and comfort because there's, there's healing qualities to that as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. It's not only the food, but it's also. The, what that food connects to right. in your emotional life Absolutely. that also feeds you. And that's really important. And so I always want to cook what people are craving and I want to do it with the healthiest, highest quality ingredients I can. But you do want to satisfy that piece of people as well, because that's also healing. Yeah. And it's important to remember too, I think, especially like there's so much balance to be had within the space of like what means to be healthy, you know, the quote unquote proverbial healthy eating and the way that it's like kind of viewed through a media lens or whatever, you know, like of what that's supposed to mean. And it almost seems like alienating and uninclusive when like in reality, like healthy encompasses so much more than just like growing, you know, your own kale in the backyard and juicing it every morning, which is wonderful and and delicious. But like, you know what I mean? There is like a spiritual healthiness incorporated in that. There's like, you know, I I do this lasagna pop-up every week. And um, sometimes people are like, you know, look at it like, is, is lasagna unhealthy, right? Is it quote unquote unhealthy? Like, because it has a lot of calories or because, you know, X, Y, and Z. But like also the emotional well-being considered and eating a delicious warm slice of lasagna when you're feeling like the world is so cold is it that is healthy so it's like what is healthy eating and I think when it comes down to it and I'm obviously interested to get you know your take on this Bhavani but um I think mostly obviously it has to do with the amount of treat you know chemicals and uh processing involved in everything but like I don't know at the end of the day I think anything can kind of be healthy if it warms your heart Mm-hmm. Well, sometime I'd love to make for you my gluten-free vegan pesto lasagna, which Ooh, you'll I'd die it. for. It is, it's so good and so satisfying. And that's one of, the, one of the things that I love to do is to create the foods that are comfort foods for people and transform them so that they are a, a bit healthier and, um, and yet just as satisfying. You know, I don't want to give up on flavor at all or texture or there's so many things that go into making something really um, um, satisfying. And, you know, for sure, it's really, it's always a challenge and I love that. It's an interesting challenge for sure. It's really, it's a, always a fun kind of puzzle to solve. Um, so you had also mentioned that when you were, and you kind of just alluded to it when you were about 23, right? You were a single mom. Yes. I graduated college five months pregnant, um, much to the horror of my parents because I was not married and I was not with her father. We were friends, but, um, I had no intention of marrying the person. Um, as a matter of fact, he just passed away two weeks ago, um, But, you know, we maintained a relationship or a friendship for most of my daughter's life. My daughter is now 42. Um, And, yeah, so I I found myself a single mom. And, you know, if there's ever a time to go on welfare (laughs) um, when you're 23 and graduating college as a single mom, that's a good time to go on welfare. And I knew, you know, a lot of people were 
were questioning me, like, don't you feel guilty going on public service? And I was like, not at all. You know, I feel like I'm going to be paying into this system my whole life. Yeah. And I had already started paying into it. And, you know, it, this is what it's for. It's a, it's a safety net and it's there for when you need it. And so it was wonderful to have not only my birth paid for through Medicaid, um, because I actually had some complications and it would have been a very expensive birth. Um, but then I had food stamps and I had WIC, you know, and the problem with food stamps and WIC is very food stamps. You could buy what any you know type of eggs or milk you wanted, but with WIC, you were limited as to what dairy you could get. And so if you wanted yeah. organic dairy, you couldn't get that with WIC. So it was a bit of a challenge, um, making use of those coupons and stuff, but uh, yeah, you know that. So I really got a taste of what it was like trying to make ends meet on a limited budget. And social services and the concept of what that really means to help human beings, like you say, through difficult times. Yeah, it's a safety net. And it's, you know, it shouldn't be someone's, you know, end all livelihood. But for when you need it, it's wonderful to have it there. And I think it always needs to be there. And I think that also opened me up to knowing that you can't judge people who are on social services. Everyone's situation is different and you don't know what brought them to that. And um, so I think that has also opened me up to wanting to help and cook for people that have less than I do because I feel very fortunate um, that I am you know, in the place that I'm in and that I can offer my services and give that, give it freely to those that need. Of course. And it's important to be able to, I don't know, to, when we live through a situation where we can have more empathy, you know, it's important. It's very hard to imagine for a lot of folks. Sometimes I think like, you know, what, what it must feel like or what it must be like in someone else's shoes, especially folks who, um, you know, our low income people who don't have the same opportunities and privilege and, you know, to cast judgment or say these people should or shouldn't, you know, and, and the reality is like you're saying, Bhavani and mom, you backed it up that like, you know, social services and social programs, particularly supporting um, people's capacity to nourish themselves and eat uh, is extremely important. And uh, I mean, one, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most important things at all, you know, Absolutely. But like you were saying before, you know, you, we need to be able to, they need to be able to purchase high quality ingredients with yeah. that. I mean, just because they're poor and they're marginalized doesn't mean that we should be giving them the crap food. Absolutely. You know, if anything, they need healthier food. Um, and, you know, and it's not that they don't want healthy food, but at the same time, they need to make those dollars stretch as far as they can. So very often they're choosing less expensive food because they need to make those um, food stamp dollars, you know, go further. And also education and how to use the foods, because very often, like you were saying, you didn't grow up learning about vegetables and how to use them necessarily. It's our, it reminds me of that time when you were working for New Hour and you did the volunteering for New Hour. It was a, an organization that um, women who have just been incarcerated and out and, um, Right, you were trying to teach them. Yeah, yeah, we, we did a cooking class and um, taught taught the folks who were in the class a little bit about how to use some of kind of different ingredients to make interesting and nourishing meals. And it's hard. It's a really, you know, we have a very this is a larger conversation, but a very flawed system, a very flawed food system, a very flawed system when it comes to you know social services for for people. Um, and it's obviously by design to keep people down, you know, a lot of the time. So it's important for folks like yourself, Bhavani, to be involved in doing you know ad advocacy work to help you know people not be brought down, you know, to um, lift them up through health, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, Bhavati, I when I met you, which was through our dear friend Kathy, who's been on our show several times, and most of our listeners know Kathy. Um, when I met you, I think that your mom had passed by then, and your dad was living because you have a, a, a piece of property that has several houses on it, and I think your dad right. was living there. Can you tell us more about that? Just about your mom too. You know what it was like. Sure. With her? Well, um, 
both my my parents and I, we they sold their house and I sold our house, and together we kind of pooled our money and bought this um, old historical piece of farmland on Long Island, um, only 30 minutes outside of the city. So it's a rare, rare find, you know, and on my block, there's all these big houses, but mine's like a, you know, set back off the road and it's a little farmhouse. But on the property was also another house that actually had been the cow barn that we gutted and renovated so that my parents could live there. And this was our big plan, like, as I said, with John Lennon, this was our plan <laughs> for my parents to live there till they, um, you know, grew old and passed away. However, um, in the process of moving there, my mother had a um, congestive heart failure. So she went in for routine heart surgery. And after heart surgery, successful surgery, five days out, she threw a blood clot to her brain oh, and boy. ended up with a stroke. And then she wasn't able to walk or talk after that. So she oh. moved into the house that we had just renovated. Oh. And my husband had the forethought when we were doing the renovation, let's make it handicap accessible in case my parents end up in a wheelchair when they get old. So it was amazing because the house was handicap accessible. So she moved in with her wheelchair, but she couldn't walk or talk. And she lived with us for about a year until she fell out of her wheelchair. Cause ah. I think she was getting better. Actually, we were feeding her well. She was doing hyperbaric treatments, which is the same treatments um, Ram Dass had told us about because he he had a stroke and he was doing these hyperbaric treatments for his stroke and it was helping him. So we started doing the hyperbaric treatments wow. for my mother. And so in the process of her getting better, I think she was reaching for the mail. She didn't have her seatbelt on in her wheelchair and she fell out. Oh, and because she was on Coumadin, because she was on Coumadin, she um, bled internally in her brain. Um, of course, it happened the beginning of July. Everybody has always told me you never want to go to the hospital beginning of July because that's when all the residencies start, right? The oh, first wow. week of July. And so we went to St. Francis Hospital, which is supposed to be a good hospital, but there was a brand new resident on. He was the only one. It was overcrowded. And, um, you know, I asked somebody after who was an ER doctor, you know, ER 101, you never lay someone down flat who you are suspecting might have a brain bleed because that all the brain goes to the head. But of course, he laid her down on a gurney, and that's when she had the blood clot that went to her brain. So, oh, but funny, um, that's such a tragic And then story. at that time, it wasn't tragic, because also St. Francis doesn't have the capacity to deal with brain injuries. So then they had to put my mother in an ambulance and take her to another hospital to deal with that. And, you know, five days later, we had to pull the plug on my mom. She never came out of that. What was that period? So of, course what was my that period father, of time like for you? What was that like? That so it was so emergency based. It was. We were all, you know, I'm one of four siblings, um, or one of four, and we're all very close. And it was a beautiful coming together of everybody, you know, sitting bedside with my mom all taking turns, but everybody was hands-on, you know? I mean, there was not much we could do in the hospital other than really give my dad all the love and support he needed. You know, we had a 24-7 caregiver that was there taking care of my mom over the past year, who was also taking care of my dad. One thing we had realized that my mom um, was in charge of my dad's health too. We didn't know this, but my father <laughs> oh, had so early stage glaucoma and was on eye medicine. But of course, when this happened to my mom, for months, he didn't take his eye medicine. So his glaucoma got much worse. So he became blind in one eye um, and was going blind in the other. So we did eye surgery for him, um, but it never came back. So my father eventually went blind. And he also was diagnosed with early stage Alzheimer's, which if you don't have the benefit of being able to see, um, oh the Alzheimer's is acerbated by not yes. being able to see because you don't have the visual cue oh, the of like who walked into the room. Oh, yeah. You have, you know, or, you know, we took my father, you know, on vacation and, you know, he wakes up in the morning and still thinks he's in his bedroom and doesn't know which way to walk because you don't open your eyes and see that you're in a different room. So um, your memory is really challenged if you have Alzheimer's and you can't mm. see. That's so, so intense. What a, you know, sometimes there's just these like wild storms of things that happen like one after another it was a really tough time in our family at that time although 
the strong love and bonds that my family has really carried us. I mean, we all took, stepped up to the plate to help my dad. My dad um, became very attached to the woman that was caring for my mother and ended up marrying her. Oh, what a sweet um, they story. Really, it really was. They had a real um, sweet love affair. Um, she kept him happy for another six years. Oh. Um, and so she and my father lived next door to us in, in the house that we renovated for my parents. And, wow. um, and you know, they'd come over every day for dinner. So we'd have dinner together every night. And I was the main cook, although Dolly, um, my dad's wife, who is a dear friend of ours now, she's still in our lives. She was a great cook from the Republic of Georgia. Oh, and wow. so, so my repertoire expanded, you know, um, <laughs> using a lot of Georgian spices and, um, and she was a great cook. So we enjoyed cooking together. Like what kind of dinner together? That's yeah. What kind of things would she make? Um, they do a lot with, um, ground walnuts, pomegranate seeds, um, really, really flavorful food. So I would make a tofu with a walnut sauce. Um, um, I make a, a beet and green pate using this um, mixture. Oh, the, my brain is going to having a moment of not no, remembering the name of the spice, <laughs> but it's a it's a mixture spice from the Republic of Georgia that is so great, and I'll share it with you when I think of it. Okay, <laughs> great. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah, Georgian food is delicious. One thing that I always really love in, in Georgian cuisine are, are those big, long breads that are kind of canoe shaped and filled Kach, with kachapuri. Yes, kachapuri. Kachapuri, oh, yeah. God, delicious. Oh yeah. So they good. are delicious. I that's one of the things I miss not eating cheese, I'll tell you. Yes. Um, oh, you know, so I good. I become vegan in the last two years. I mean I I'd say we ate a lot of plant based vegan food anyway, but over the last two years, my husband and I really transitioned to being fully vegan and um so we've given up a lot of those favorite foods. I know. But that's a beautiful, going back to your story, what an interesting kind of just chain of events. I'm actually just thinking of a friends of mine who have been in a really tumultuous time recently and in a similar way, like the one thing leading into the other thing, leading into the other thing. And it's wild when you find yourself in the middle of that, you're like, God, like wasn't the one thing enough? You know what I mean? Right, How did right. this happen like dominoes? And then one day it's not like that anymore. You know, one day you're telling the story of something that happened like a while ago yeah. and you have Well, this... in between that, I also, my, my sister, my younger sister's husband died of brain cancer at 39, oh. a year, oh my a year after my mother. So there was oh my, my mother. And then right after my mother, we were dealing with her husband passing away with brain cancer and yeah, it just seemed like there was one after the next. And my, my sister and I we were looking at each other going, nobody told us about this part of life. You know, it's almost know. like when you're younger, when you're younger, you're not thinking about end of life reality. And then as you get older, you know, one by one, you're losing, you know, you're losing people. And, um, and it's really a whole another part of the life experience that you are sheltered from in our lives here in America. We're really sheltered from death, I think. Um, yes. You know, in other cultures, death can be celebrated. You know, you'll have big fires and a celebration of somebody's life. And it's it's not the same type of mourning situation that it is in our country. And it's really, I think, unfortunate. You know, I mean, when my grandparents died, my parents didn't take us to the funeral. We kind of like separated from that. They didn't want to. They didn't want us to right. be sad or burdened by it or whatever. So, of course, um, I think it's really something that shouldn't be hidden from our kids. You know, our kids should be a part of it. And I know my kids were. You know, living on the property with my mother and my father. Exactly. My kids were very close to seeing what it's like. And, you know, I feel like, you know, when I was younger, my dad took in his father and he lived with us till he passed. And so I think it's, a, you know, modeling um, 
modeling how you take people in who you love and care for them as opposed to sending them off somewhere. And, you know, I just hope that when I get old, my kids, my kids will remember that role modeling and and help take care of me. So I'm just not like put off to pasture, you know, (laughs) (laughs) for sure. And you're right. Like, I mean, we talk about this all the time and it's a big reason why we started the show is that, you know, the normalization of grief would, and often, I mean, of course, grief, uh, and loss hits people at all different times during their lives. But like, you know, there is a, a lot of it compounds as we, you know, ourselves or our loved ones get older, obviously, right? With the passing of time, this becomes more and more of a reality. And it is too bad. It adds almost insult to injury to have to have that moment of like, oh my God, no one told us this was going to be like this. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. So like, it's yeah. like we know it, right? Like we all know from like a pretty young age one day you'll grow old and die. Your parents will grow old and die. But like, you don't, like, you aren't prepared. Here we are in school, like learning, you know, about math problems we'll never use ever again in our lives or like really diluted, watered down version of American history. And nobody tells us that like, here's what it will feel like Mm -hmm. to like, lose people here's what it will feel like at some points in your life things compound to get so big like here's some coping tools or here's how to celebrate people or embrace this thought of the reality of this thing happening so that we don't have to find ourselves in these times where it's like so ridiculous you know it feels so ridiculous and we don't know how to reach out or how to get through it you know and I think you know one of the benefits of what's happened one of the silver linings of what's happened over the past few years with COVID I think is just like in small ways, people expanding the conversation around grief and that, you know, let's talk about the fact that life is fucking very hard. (laughs) You know, let's like really talk about it and let's also really try to live it while we have it and while things are good. But that's a really incredible storm of things to happen at the same time. I'm so sorry for that. That's like so intense. You spend so much of your adult life caring for for others as as a family. Yeah, but, you know, the silver lining, I mean... Yeah, I just am so grateful. I'm so fortunate that I have the support of a loving family, Um, you know, and I think, you know, that the strength that you get from that is huge, you know, can't be understated, you know, and, um, you know, I would not take it back for a moment. You know, some people say, well, you don't, you don't want to love so intensely because then you're going to be sad so much more, but I don't, I don't fall for that. You know, I, I want to love fully. I want to grieve fully. I want to, you know, take it all in. That's and, beautiful. Um, one of the ways you said it in your um, pre-interview was losing someone you love is always hard, but it's worth having the love while you can. I thought that was so yeah. beautifully said. Agreed. I love yeah. that. That's beautiful. We're on, we're, we're with you on that. Yeah. The wholeheartedness of, of living, you know, yeah. Um, and I think it requires like, you know, for the work you do and the work you've done with in education and with um, with houseless people, um, I just think it's so it, it really I think you need to have this like kind of inner appreciation and gratitude for your own life and your own what your own, you know, ways in which you're privileged and the experiences that you had to be able to kind of have that level of empathy um, and compassion to give back. And it's very clear that you have that and that you're very in tune with it. And that in itself is such a gift. I always think of all of the things in my life that I am grateful for and all the privileges and advantages that I've had. And what I actually feel most grateful for is being able to be aware of those things you know, and use them as tools, because I think there are so many people who have immense privilege in their life and aren't like aware of it and don't appreciate it. Like being able to look at your privilege and like the opportunities that you have and the things you have around you, whether they're big or small and be able to actually have real gratitude for them and then use that to help other people is actually the luckiest thing, I think. And it really seems like you are on that tip so much and it's really inspiring, truly. And I think that like coming to your house and watching you cook all those turkeys that time (laughs) really actually affected me more than I've probably ever expressed or known. It was such a beautiful example of of giving, you know, and it's, you have obviously such like a warm and wonderful uh, and giving spirit. It's, it's really inspirational. And community. Thank it you. also represented how we build community because, you know, we can do things individually, but when we build that into a group and, and 
that's so much bigger. You know, the, the synergy. Absolutely. Of one plus one does not equal two. It equals so much more. So for sure. So right. For sure. And and when you talk about gratitude, that's one thing you really it's very hard to teach gratitude. You know, it's almost like um, you try, but it's hard to teach gratitude. And, um, you know, and sometimes I know my sister and I would sometimes talk about, you know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. It's like, do you have you know, is it because we have privilege that we can step back and have that gratitude or because we have the gratitude, we can see that we have the privilege. I mean, I just don't know which comes first. You know, I, you know, I know I talk to people sometimes whose life was so much harder than mine and, you know, they don't have the same optimistic outlook and you just don't know, is it because their life was so hard or is it because, um, of their outlook that their life was so hard, you know, just, I don't know. I know. It's like, sometimes I think it just takes like with anybody's life, like it can, you can really be someone of almost any kind of background or any, like of any kind of life experience. And sometimes it's just those little things that stick and click, like something you hear, something you see, someone that you meet, something, someone, you know, someone in your life. And cause there's like not really a rhyme or rhythm to like that, you know what I mean? It is nurture and nature. It is um, circumstance. And it isn't sometimes because we see all kinds of people and all different kinds of walks of life and circumstances and levels of privilege that have different kind of attitudes and, uh, and, and both are okay. You know, if you're someone who has an extremely difficult life and you aren't able to have like an incredible perspective and immense gratitude and, you know, it's, that's very understandable. It doesn't, you know what I mean? It's not the metric of success or, um, kind of a barometer of how, what a, you know, how good or bad of a person anyone is, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's very hard. And also in the same family, that. in the same family, you can have similar traumas and there's a different outlook. You know, it, it's, you were saying before, it's, it has to stick. And for some people, it just doesn't stick, you know, the, but I, I was thinking before, as we were talking that sometimes in the worst of times, that's when we can be most grateful because that's when you realize the simple things around you that you have, heat, that you have family, that you have somebody around you, you know, all those things. I think it's sometimes in the worst times you can appreciate and value what you have. I've always thought of it like, I don't know, like you, I have a friend that I talk to a lot who's in a really going through a really hard time. And I try to tell him, you know, not tell him to be great. Uh, he is a person with great perspective, but just, you know, when we're talking to people who are having a difficult time, like encouraging them to think about things like they can be grateful for a little like things to, to hang on to. Um, and you know, sometimes it's really just about the very simple little pleasures in a day and just realizing that, you know, the sun like shone on me today and I was warm or I smelled something good or I ate something good and just kind of having those like small pleasures to get through a day because it can be in these kinds of times, like you were describing before or for all people experience like difficulties in all different ways, like just those little tiny nuggets to get you through the day until like one day there's a little bit of a, of a bigger, you know, a bigger thing to be appreciative of. It's hard. You know, it's interesting. Even when my mom had her stroke, we used to um, talk about how for the first time in her life, I think she was like, I mean, she went back to being a child so that she was appreciating the squirrels. I mean, she'd sit in her wheelchair and got such a kick out of watching a squirrel eat a little <laughs> acorn, you know, or or the birds. I mean, things that she just didn't have time to appreciate in her regular life because she was busy running around, whatever. All of a sudden, she was seeing it in a whole different way. And there was some beauty in that. Of course. And you were appreciating her, appreciating the squirrel. That's the yeah. other part of it. So. Well, that's one of the things I say yeah. about being a mother, having kids. It's like you get to experience life, the wonder of life all over again when you see kids discovering things for the first time. Um, you know, uh, one of my favorite things is, you know, as um, a teacher at the Waldorf School, you know, seeing kids paint with yellow and then paint with um, uh, blue and, 
and I mean green and then all of a sudden make blue you know it's yeah. like oh my god they you know they discover that for the first time with watercolor and they're just like oh my god or red and yellow and they made orange and the excitement and how they just discovered that for the first time it's like yeah amazing it is amazing we have all these different ways in which our eyes open through our entire lives so talking about yeah. s- schools um will you tell the listeners a little bit more about the work you've been doing in helping um, schools learn about and kids learn about food. I'd love to. Um, unfortunately, with COVID, the, my position as the farm to school coordinator at Glen Cove was abruptly brought to a halt. Um, they've called me to come back and I'm not in a position to actually come back right now, but I love the work. Um, you know, school food is notoriously terrible. Um, and it's not because the cafeteria ladies don't care, because most of them do care. It's the, it's more that the ingredients that they're given, um, they can't do much with. I mean, a lot of the women that I was working with, you know, were older. I felt like I was in actually Italy in the cafeteria I was working in. I mean, all these women were Italian. They were good cooks. They knew what they were doing. But they were given frozen a goblet, you know, what are they going to do yeah. with it? All they can do is, you know, stick it in the oven and, you know, a frozen French toast or even, even peanut butter and jelly now comes, you know, because of the peanut allergies. It's all prepackaged Welch's peanut butter sandwiches. They cut the crust, pre-cut the crust off no. and they're in these sealed things and they're frozen. And those are, that's the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that they're giving to the kids now. It's terrible. Everything, everything was pre-done, frozen, and it was just so discouraging. And so um, my job was to coordinate and to connect with some of the local farms and bring in some local vegetables. And I was actually able to um, have a farm grow for us an extra 600 pounds of butternut squash. You wow. know, they were going to let one, you know, field go fallow. And then said they planted and brought us, you know, 600 pounds of butternut squash that I made butternut squash soup from, and I made an appetizer from it, you know, with some maple syrup for the kids. And, um, That's awesome. and it was really great. And so, you know, asparagus we brought in from out East, um, and gave them fresh asparagus. So I would, I would get the fresh vegetables. Then I would make a recipe up and they'd post it on the, um, the school district website. So all the parents had access to the recipe. Um, And then I would go into all six schools during the lunch hour and give out free samples of the dish. And it was really nice. You know, it was awesome. The younger kids were, you know, willing to try it more so than the older kids. I mean, I got to say, once you got to the high school, the kids barely wanted to look up from their cell phones. You know, it was really actually I had not been in a cafeteria, a school cafeteria since cell phones were a thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. And where we used to all have lunch period and everybody was talking or whatever. Now, so much was people individually on their cell phones. There was much less interaction going on, much less happening, happening in the cafeteria. And so um, I was feeling a bit frustrated. And so I actually partnered with the health teachers and I started going into the health classes mm. and showing a like a I had this great animated 10 minute video from the Sierra Club that I was showing them that just showed the connection of where your food comes from and how it gets to your plate and all the way that the way that uh um, a sustainable cycle would work versus an industrial cycle. And so that people could see the difference. And for the first time, I felt like I was actually making a connection for the high school kids to understand what we were trying to do. And the following week, when I was in the cafeteria giving them the samples, they noticed me because they now had seen me in their classroom. Where That's prior, awesome. you know, when I came into the classroom, people were like, does anyone know, recognize this person? They had been seeing me all year, but they didn't even recognize me as the cafeteria lady, you know, that had been in the cafeteria, but now they did. And they were, you know, willing to sample the food. You are very smart and ingenious. It is cool. You really are. It's really great. I'm really so inspired by the work that you do. It's Mm. really just awesome. I'm sorry, Bobby. I didn't mean to interrupt you. What were you going to say? Not at all. I was just going to say that, you know, through the last few years, I don't know how long you've been doing your newsletter, um, and how long you've been doing your show, but I hope you'll tell us all about that. 
but I've been listening to it and reading it and realizing what an advocate you are across the board in terms of how things are grown and how things are, all the things you're talking about. But then I went to your website and I hadn't realized how beautiful, first of all, it's a beautiful website. It's so thorough and thank um, you, just gorgeous. And you had so many interesting things on it, including recipes and all the work that you do. But you also talked about your shiitake mushrooms that you have started, what is it, about a year ago? Uh-huh. And you showed yeah. the whole process, every single step of how you are growing them. I thought that was so interesting. You want to tell us just a little bit yeah. more about that? Sure. Well, well, we decided to grow shiitakes and oyster mushrooms. And the shiitakes, you really kind of do out in nature, and they they do their own thing. And so you get oak logs. You drill holes in the oak logs. Um, I purchase spores through um, fields and forest mushroom supply. Um, so, so you drill out these little um, holes into the logs. You put in the spores, and then you plug the logs up with some beeswax. Hmm. And we had beeswax because we actually had bees. So we, you know, but you could also buy some wax if you don't. But anyway, so we filled the holes up with the beeswax. And then you just let them, it takes about a year for the shiitakes to kind of um, populate the spores into the oak logs. And when you're ready to harvest them, you can just let them happen naturally, which they will happen with the rain and the um, weather. But it, if you you know know that you want to have shiitakes at this weekend, you can go out and soak your log for 24 hours in like a bucket or a big garbage pail, and then you whack it with a hammer. And the whacking it with a hammer simulates a tree falling in the forest Whoa. and tells the mushrooms to sprout. Isn't that cool? That's cool. That's amazing. It's really cool. Oh, yeah, yeah that is so, amazing. So that's the shiitake mushrooms. But the oyster mushrooms was a whole different thing. The oyster oh. mushrooms don't grow on logs. They grow in, um, they grow in straw. And so we had to get all this straw and we had to sterilize the straw, like pour boiling water over it to sterilize it and then lay it out and fill these plastic bags. We, we've got a roll of plastic bag that you can um, kind of tie it off at the end and make it however big you want. They look like punching bags. Like each one was wow. like four feet or so filled with the straw and you make holes in the straw and you put the spores in that way and they start pinning coming out from the logs i mean from the straw bales but you have to um kind of create an environment for that that's not done outside so you have to have it warm and moist inside um so we first had it dark and um temperature controlled in our basement and then when they start to pin then they want light. So then we brought them upstairs into my son's bedroom and hung them. We set up a, a <laughs> coat rack so we could hang them in the coat rack. And we put, we um, draped plastic all around it so that we created kind of like a, um, a greenhouse and filled it with some um, uh, a humidifier so that there was some moisture too. And then the mushrooms overnight, they just started sprouting. It was amazing. We had so many mushrooms. Oh, Bavani, yeah, you, are filled, you are loved, really fun. and the thought of your home filled with potatoes in the, <laughs> in the uh, bathtub and uh, mushrooms, oyster mushrooms in the closet, and it's just amazing. <laughs> well, Very cool. Yeah, my son's room really became like a laboratory. <laughs> of course, he's not living there anymore, so it's easy, but yeah. That's amazing. Oh, boy. Bavani, this has been such a great talk, and, you know, at the end of every episode, we always like to ask everyone the same question, which is if you could have given yourself a little bit of advice, um, your younger self at the beginning of your, you know, experience, which for you is there's so many different experiences we could talk about given what we've just chatted about in this episode. It could be your, you know, experience with grief with your parents or your experience as a young person kind of coming into all this work you've done in the food space, but whatever that is, well, whoever that younger version of yourself is, if you have any advice for that person kind of go, having gone through what you've gone through now, what would that be? Don't shield your kids from death, you know, bring them in, let them, let them experience it as youngsters so that they know that it's part of life because it is, um, you know, so that they're not shocked as I was when I became a young adult and all of a sudden people were dying. I was like, oh, nobody told me this was going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, you just that. don't think about it. So I think, you know, incorporating death into life so that it's part of life because it is part of life just makes sense to me. 
Beautiful. I love that. And then we also like to think that we could, I mean, and this is possible in this case, cause we are all friends. Um, if we could share a meal together, right. And I mean, this weekend or whenever right now, uh, what would we all bring? Well, that's up to you, but I'd, I'd love to bring you my vegan pesto lasagna. Yeah. So you can I taste it. I, I made the ricotta <laughs> cheese with some cashew cream. Um, and it is just so delicious and rich. And of course, you know, I have my freezers filled with pesto from, you know, the basil that I grow and, um, you know, I have a large garden. So I grow a lot of my vegetables. So, so um, awesome. yeah, I'd love to okay. do that for you sometime. Cool. Sounds great. I would love that. Mom, what would you bring? Well, I would like to gather some of your mushrooms <laughs> that you have <laughs> and make some um, some mushroom strudel. The mushroom ragu, make a really good mushroom ragu with all kinds of thyme and wonderful herbs. And um, I'll borrow a little bit of your cashew cream and put a little bit of that in there and some chives. And then I'll make some mushroom strudel. Uh-huh. I want to share one quick little thing. I don't know if yes. you remember this, Bobby, and Zara, you probably don't know this, but when I graduated college and I was starting my catering company with my sister, we were living in Huntington at the time, and we went and pretended we were getting married, and we went to this um, caterer in Huntington called Love and Quiches. Love and Oven and or Love and Quiches? We were getting married. Love and Oven or Love and, love and, love and Oven? What love was your oven. business? Love and Oven. Love, love and oven. oven. Yeah. So we went to love and oven and pretended we were getting married. Oh, so we could so so we could see what a I knew a you wedding familiar would look like. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. That's so incredible. And, well, I'm, gl- I'm glad that That's I helped you in that way because you did. We all help each other. <laughs> That's and I was awesome. Think, I was, what are you going to bring, Zara, to the meal? Oh, what am I going to bring to the meal? Well, okay. I am going to also bring something vegan. I'm going to bring pasta with a cauliflower, like Alfredo. So there's something that I used to make for clients of mine who were vegan. Um, And Bavani, I'm sure you've probably made something similar in the past, but blanched almonds, cauliflower, a little bit of almond milk, a little bit of nutritional yeast, lots of garlic, Uh and you whiz it up really fine in the blender. And it's this luxurious cauliflower like Alfredo that's vegan. Um, I think Yum. that's some like rigatoni sounds good and lots of like, maybe like a little salsa verde, like drizzled on top for a little pinch. We'll have like a pasta <laughs> party. Oh, let's do it. It sounds yeah, great. So good. You know, I, I found a quote. Um, I always like to have some quotes or poems and I found something from Desmond Tutu. He said, do your little bit of good where you are. It's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the difficult world and nothing could be truer right now. And you bring so much goodness to the world, Bavani. It's such an honor to have you as a friend and to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And you too. Well, let's make this meal happen, okay? Good. Yes, let's do it. Bavani, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. What an interesting, fun, lovely, amazing conversation. It's just every person we chat with you. has such a different vibe and energy and like kind of perspective and yes. this was just such a wonderful one it and was tell really us how people time. can find you well, tell us about how they can yeah, find you i would love to um my website is i eat green.com and it's a lowercase i kind of like iphone i eat so i eat green.com and i have a weekly radio show on the progressive radio network every thursday at 10 a.m but it's always you know recorded as a podcast so people can listen anytime and i share a weekly recipe so every week i'm sharing a vegan recipe that um i put up on my website wonderful so try them out um, and it's really fun i've been doing it for i think like 12 years now a long so time. Cool. Okay, great. Well, we're definitely going to check that out and hope all of you do too. And Bhavani, thank you so much. And everyone, Thanks, take care Sarah. of yourselves and each other. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. Bye. 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 This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. 
Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.